Good morning. This is the third in our series of Christian faith and modern science. And as we go along, I like to bring things in that relate to what we've been talking about. And as you recall, the first of our lectures was on what is science. And to summarize it in a word, we agreed, or at least I should say I mentioned, I'm not sure everyone agreed, that in modern science we never reach absolute truth. We always challenge what is being discovered. And along those lines, I brought a little item in that I ran across since the series began that you may have seen in the newspaper. A previously held truth, quotation marks, of science has been challenged. That truth is that the universe is uniform. That's called the cosmological principle. A few weeks ago, it was announced in the papers, and this is in the New York Times that I'm holding here, and when Walter Sullivan writes it in the New York Times, I have great confidence in it. Uh, Walter Sullivan, I think, is one of the country's uh, best science writers. And he reports that astronomers have now discovered a hole in the sky. Not a black hole that you've been reading about for a few years, but a real hole where there is nothing. And this is a pretty big hole. It says the hole in space is estimated to be 300 million light years wide. Our whole Milky Way is only 100,000 light years wide. 300 million light years wide. And Dr. Paul Schechter of the Kitt Peak National Observatory said that finding a region where the density of material was one-tenth that of the universe as a whole is, quote, exceedingly hard to understand. So we don't know why there's a big hole in the sky. That confirms what we are saying, that science is constantly changing as new truths, or at least new conclusions, are brought forth. And last Sunday, we talked about what is faith. And I mentioned that faith is absolute, that the Bible says that faith is being certain of something you cannot see, and that there are many areas of life that you must hold in faith because there's no way of establishing them in any other way. And I mentioned that there are several kinds of faith, that you can take your pick of a various, of a great many different kinds of religions and faiths, and that one of these is a belief in evolution. Whether or not these faiths are compatible with your Christian faith is something that you have to look at very carefully. I mentioned astrology as another one. There are some people who feel that astrology is compatible with Christian faith. To me, it is not. I do not see how a person can believe in astrology and also in the revealed word of God in the Bible. But I have had long discussions with people, and including students, who are sure they can do that. But along those lines, I want to bring to your attention something that was announced last week, and that is that there will be a nationally televised debate between a creationist and an evolutionist. And the creationist is Dr. Gish, the one I mentioned last week, who is a very knowledgeable scientist. And he will debate one of the country's best-known evolutionists. You'll have to watch, it says, for time and station. It'll be a formal debate, 
not just arguing back and forth, there'll be a specific number of minutes for the one and the rebuttals and so on for a whole hour, and it will be uh, moderated by Dr. Jerry Falwell. Now, Dr. Falwell may not be entirely neutral on this question, and I'm not sure if it'll be on his program or not, but Dr. Gish is going to debate Dr. Doolittle on national television. Um, I have on tape, if you missed that one, a three-hour debate at Princeton University that I referred to between Dr. Gish and one of the evolutionists on their faculty there. The topic for today is miracles. And the reason I am devoting an entire uh, lesson to this is because in most discussions of Christian faith and modern science, the question of miracles comes up and people want to know, does a scientist believe in miracles? Well, what is a miracle is the first thing we have to answer before we can ask anybody whether you believe in them. And of course, there are various ways to find out the meaning of a word. You can ask a scientist what a miracle is. You can look in the dictionary. You can look at the Bible. But let's agree first what it is before we start talking about it. And I like to start it with a little story. This is my favorite story of a miracle. And that is that a man was on the roof of his house fixing the roof. And he slipped. And he was on his way down. And he started praying. I don't know how often he prayed normally, but he said, Oh Lord, help me, I need a miracle. And down he goes, and about halfway down, he gets caught in a nail. And stays there, and his life is saved. And he says, Lord, never mind, I'm caught in a nail. Now, to some people, it was a miracle. To him, after he was caught in the nail, it was not an, a miracle any longer, right? Well, we'll talk about that some more. The dictionary says, among many other things, and you know when you say dictionary, all the dictionary does is read back to you what we have already agreed on. Dictionary is not some external authority from on high. It's something that dictionary writers uh, agree people think. I know that's the case because I helped to write a dictionary once and unfortunately went bankrupt. But I remember very well sitting there with the editors and so on trying to decide what shall we say this word means. Well, let's look in the books. So they put all the books into a computer. And how many books say this and how many say that and then the dictionary says this. So a miracle, the dictionary says, is an unusual event. Well, that's not very helpful. <laughs> There are many unusual events. The church defines miracles. The Catholic Church particularly has a very specific meaning for miracles. Because if a person, dead or alive, has performed certain kinds of miracles, then he's on his way to sainthood. Specifically, two miracles, if they can be attested to, will get a person to a certain position towards sainthood, four miracles is a proof, and then the person is canonized. Well, let's get to our own denomination and see what did Luther say. Luther had, of course, comments on anything that you asked him about. Sometimes these comments were recorded by his students and are not all that authentic. The table talk of Luther, for example. Luther did not write the table talks. He talked. But his students who were sitting there eating 
would write them down. Some of them liked Luther and they wrote nice table talks. Some of them, any teacher knows, were not friendly. And so if you would read some of the things they write about you in your class, you'd have funny table talks too. So Luther said in one of these discussions that a miracle is anything unusual that happens in another town. So if you bring an elephant into a town where there are no elephants, the people will look at it and say, it's a miracle. But if you look at a dog or a cat, that's not a miracle. And that's a very, very knowledgeable definition because it means that a miracle is to one person something that he does not understand, but the same thing to another person is a perfectly normal thing. But because it's normal, Luther is trying to say, does not make it any less of a miracle. The colors on those trees out there are miracles. I don't care how many biologists will tell me why the color is there. That doesn't mean they know why it's there. They just know a lot of words I don't know. And they think, well, maybe I shouldn't say what they think, but just to categorize it and to put it in departments doesn't make it any less wonderful. So a miracle is really, Luther concludes, the whole universe. Everything is a miracle because we certainly couldn't do it ourselves. When I ask the scientists in various countries what miracles are, here are some of the responses I got. One of them said, and this was the head of engineering at Virginia Polytechnic Institute, and by the way, he was succeeded in, uh, uh, preceded in that position by Dr. Morris, who is now the head of the um, Bible science movement in California. He gave up his position there in order to do that. It may very well be that there are perfectly well-documented cases where real physical things happen that are unexplainable in terms of ordinary, readily known theories. Notice how many words scientists always use to make sure they're not misunderstood. He is saying, Dr. Worcester is saying, that it's entirely possible that things happen that scientists cannot explain. Another one, Dr. Anderson. Dr. Anderson is the head of research for IBM. I went up to Harriman, New York to see him in his laboratory. If a very sound person had examined all the evidence and had concluded that he really couldn't find a sound basis for explaining an event, I would not conclude that he had been a sloppy investigator. I would conclude that perhaps there is not a sound basis of cause and effect relationship. He's saying the same thing, in other words. He's saying if somebody said he saw something strange happen, I would not call him a liar. Dr. Yutterud, this was in Oslo. I would be very careful about disbelieving the witnesses of miracles because then I have to conclude that they are lying. I would stay away from any explanation, just accept it as a witness. I think this is the attitude of science, to be open-minded and not to close the world down and say things are impossible. I think it is an anti-scientific attitude to conclude that things are impossible. I could go on for pages. This is not generally what people think scientists say about miracles. This is not what you read in textbooks. Most textbooks will give you the impression that everything has an explanation and that if you believe in the impossible, 
you're not scientific. Well, these people absolutely disagree with that. And of all the interviews I had, I don't think there was a single exception to that. In fact, this one scientist in Oslo went on to say, if a person came through the door and said he saw a person rising from the dead, he wouldn't call him a liar. He would have to write it down. Well, that's just about enough on definitions, except I want to highly recommend, if you really want to get into a Christian discussion on the scientific level of what a miracle is, by all means, read C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis is a wonderful writer. He's not easy to read, but it's all the more meaningful because C.S. Lewis at one time lost his faith. He became an agnostic, and then he got it back, and then became a real writer of Christian truth. And he classifies, everything C.S. Lewis writes is classified into very definite categories. And if you go along with his first argument or first thesis, you just follow very logically along and you just almost are forced to become a Christian if such a thing is possible at the end. I like to think of C.S. Lewis as the Protestant Thomas Aquinas because Aquinas was the one who put the Catholic religion into logical categories and so does C.S. Lewis. If you have an intellectual who thinks he's too smart to be a Christian, give him C.S. Lewis and ask him what's wrong with this book. <laughs> and he'll really have to do a lot of thinking before he can come up with an objection. Well, Lewis classifies the miracles of Jesus, for example, into six types. I don't know if you ever thought about this because we're going to talk about that next, the miracles in the Bible. And Lewis says there are six kinds. Miracles of fertility, where he makes something grow or where he changed water into wine and so on. Miracles of healing, that we're very familiar with. Miracles of destruction, where he, for instance, dried up the fig tree and things of that kind. Miracles of dominion over the inorganic, where he calmed the ocean. Miracles of reversal. What's a miracle of reversal? Well, he raised somebody from the dead. Lazarus died, he reversed him. Miracles of perfecting or glorification. And that, for instance, is the transfiguration on the mount, and so on. So be sure, you can even get this now in a book, a fatter one called The Best of C.S. Lewis, where it has five of his books all in one. You save a little money there. But miracles by C.S. Lewis. Well, let's get into the Bible. That's where the Christian belongs in the first place. And I said these first things because I want you to know that there are a lot of scientists who believe in the Bible and who do not say that as science continues, the Bible becomes less necessary. In fact, many of them said it becomes more necessary, that if we're going to solve the problems we have today in science, the problems of pollution and of the nuclear uh, power question and so on, we better look in the Bible for guidance. How many healing stories do you think there are in the Bible? Not including any other kinds of miracles now. A lot of them, right? Even in the Old Testament. Altogether, nine in the Old Testament, 37 that Jesus did and 10 that his apostles did. There are very few things in the Bible, topics, that are so frequently used and mentioned as miraculous healings. And that's why 
In our discussion today, I want to leave plenty of time to talk about that kind of miracle, because that's personal. That has real meaning in our daily lives. Whether uh, there's a miracle of even changing water into wine, you know, that doesn't affect me as much as if I'm sick and then they're miraculously healed. So in the short time we have, we should concentrate on that. What methods did Jesus use when he healed people? Well, if you look through the stories of the 37 healings that are recorded there, you find some interesting things. There are cases where the attitudes of the people prevented Jesus from doing a miracle. It says that in the one town he could not, because of their unbelief, do a miracle there or heal there. On the other hand, whenever someone asked Jesus for a healing, they always got it. They always were answered. He used a lot of methods. Sometimes he touched the people, sometimes they touched him. Sometimes there was no touching at all. Sometimes he spoke, sometimes he didn't. A woman touched the hem of his garment, not a word, and she was healed. I'm trying to find out if there is any magic formula, you see, to this thing, so that you can say, this is it. As a matter of fact, I brought with me, in case you're interested in magic formulas, a, an ad for A Course in Miracles. Now, I heard about how this course got started. You saw that film two Sundays ago in Houston, right? About all the Lutherans getting together there? I was a reporter there. That was a very amazing experience. I didn't know there were 17 Lutheran synods. 17. Some of them have only two churches in them. <laughs> but they were all invited to this. And for a whole week, they're in a beautiful setting. The question of the future was discussed. And one man got up, and he used to be the president of the University of Hawaii. And he said that he believes that truths are often imparted to people miraculously. That in the middle of the night, sometimes, and he didn't use the word the Lord does it, but he might as well have because I don't know in the middle of the night who else comes through the roof and puts things on the ceiling of your bedroom. He says he knows a fellow who was sleeping there one night and he was worried about a problem in his business. He needed a design for a specific kind of electric furnace or something they needed for his business. And his engineers could not come up with it. And all of a sudden, while he's lying there, a light came on and there's a picture of a design of a furnace on the ceiling. And he gets out a pencil and paper and he copies it down and he brought it in. If I didn't hear this man tell this, I wouldn't have believed it. I mean, this was a perfect president of the university, right? He brought it into his office the next morning, showed it to his chief engineer, and he said, what do you think of this? He said, well, where did you get that? Why have you been holding out on us? That's the answer to our problem. Where did you get it? He said, you wouldn't believe it. <laughs> he says, try me. And he told him. And the man, to his surprise, didn't say a word. He says, isn't that unusual? And the guy said, where do you think I get my ideas? <laughs> In science, I tell my students many 
cases of where scientists have come up with new theories and new inventions in the middle of the night, maybe in a ceiling, maybe somewhere else, but it's at the point where I encourage them to keep a pad and pencil at the bed because if they have a test the next day, for instance, the formula for benzene, I don't know, those of you who know chemistry, the benzene ring, C6H6, came to a man in the middle of the night in a dream. Well, this same fellow went on to say that another woman was lying there and she was not a Christian, agnostic kind of a person, lying there, couldn't sleep, and all of a sudden, a voice came to her in a bedroom and said, now hear this. What? What? This is a course in miracles. Take notes. What? She didn't do anything. She thought maybe she's been eating too much something. What? It came back. I told you to take notes. And she gets a paper and pencil out and starts writing. And for two years, this voice told her this course in miracles. Now, do you believe that story? In fact, you cannot even, you, didn't, you weren't formerly uh, able to buy this book unless you first went through some kind of a screening process. You had to go to a weekend or something before you could even buy and take this course in miracles. Well, if you want to spend $25 and read her notes in the middle of the night, that's your business. But. <laughs> It doesn't come out to be a completely Christian kind of thing, by the way, as you go through there. But at least it shows that people who are perfectly rational and scientific believe in miracles. Now that's another method, you see. Well, let's continue with Jesus' methods, because he's the master teacher. Sometimes he healed when there were a lot of people present. Sometimes he told everybody to get out. Sometimes he said, don't tell anybody this. Sometimes he would say, go and tell. Go and show yourself to the priests and so on. And he didn't use the same techniques for the same kind of healing. Sometimes he healed blindness by making a little salve on the ground and putting it on the eyes, sometimes not. What's the conclusion? The conclusion is that it's not the method that did the healing. It's not a, a, a formula or a secret kind of an utterance, abracadabra or whatever. And it seems to me that it is purposely recorded in the Bible for that reason. That people don't say, well now here is the magic way in which to do it. Obviously it's the person of Jesus, the Godhead of Jesus that did the healing, not the technique he was using. He was attracting attention to himself and the fact that he is the savior, not to some method. And the writers of the Bible were inspired by God to put it down in that way also. Well then, where does faith come in? Wasn't it the faith of the people that did the miracle? Well, let's take a look at it. Sometimes Jesus would say, your faith has made you whole. Sometimes the faith of a friend was responsible. The centurion came and said, my servant is ill. He didn't say whether the servant had faith or not, but the centurion certainly did. Sometimes he did a miracle even though there was not a great deal of faith evident. 
In Capernaum, he healed people, and even there it says that he was not highly regarded. Often there is no faith mentioned at all. For instance, the demoniac who was healed. It doesn't say anything about faith. And there were times, of course, when faith was the result of the miracle. It would say that the people worshipped him. Sometimes not. When he stilled the water, for example, you'd think that certainly then the disciples would all say, Oh Lord, we believe in you. doesn't say that. What does it say? After he did that amazing thing, it says, Great fear filled them. <laughs> now that's certainly not what we would want a miracle to produce. It doesn't say Jesus did this miracle to scare them to death. He did it to help them. And even after they were helped, then they were still filled with fear. Well, in the early church there were miracles also. In fact, it is important to realize that miracles are not just performed by Jesus in the Bible. In fact, he told his disciples, you're going to do miracles like this also. You're going to do greater things than these. But remember that they were always done in his name. And that comes to a very important point. Jesus and God are not the only ones and disciples in Jesus' name who can perform miracles. The devil can do miracles too, and his disciples. And often people come to me and say, well, don't tell me that miracles therefore prove that a person ought to become a Christian. Very often Satan performs miracles in order to get people into his place. Remember in the Old Testament, at the time of Pharaoh, those were miracles that those priests of Pharaoh performed. I mean, I haven't seen anybody throw a stick in the ground and turn into a snake, but his magicians could, with the, with the devil's help, of course. But we must, even with miracles then, look and see why the miracle is being performed and what is behind it. Always a miracle performed by the early church in the name of Jesus was done to proclaim the power of God. Sometimes people would come to the disciples and say, how come we can't do this miracle you're doing? How much money do you want? <laughs> They're same thing today, right? How much do you want for this course in miracles? $25 or what? No, you've got the wrong idea. They even raised people from the dead, Peter and Paul did. Well, what are some of the do's and don'ts of miracles that we learn in this process? And mind you now, I'm answering the question without even spending time on it, whether miracles occur today. Obviously, miracles occur today. These scientists wouldn't talk about it if they didn't. They wouldn't say, well, those things don't happen anymore. And that means, of course, miracles of healing and in the Christian church as well. It is not true that miracles stopped at a certain point. Where does it say in the Bible that after this time, no more miracles were done? 
Now, I've heard people say, theologians, that miracles occurred in the early church in order to get the church going. And once it was established, it wasn't necessary anymore because now we have the word of God. Well, I don't think it's any easier to establish a church today than it was at the time of the early apostles. Just because there weren't so many churches around doesn't make it any harder. It is always difficult to start a community of believers. Satan is always opposed to it. It always takes power to establish a communion of God's people. And therefore, that argument, I think, is simply not realistic, that today we don't need them. We need all the help we can get when we're Christians, no matter what age. Well, what does the Bible tell us about the ways in which miracles, not that we can cause them, but the way in which miracles can happen among us? Well, now this is a very personal list here. I gained a lot from what Margaret has put together on this in her workshops on healing and miracles, and you may have some others that you want to add. I want to leave enough time today to talk about this. It seems to me that one of the things we should not do if we want miracles to happen in our lives and in the church, and that is to tell God how it should be done or when it should be done, or how much at one time. God is a pro when it comes to making the world and to keeping us alive. You go to a pro, if you're sick, you go to a doctor, he tells you something, or I have found that the more you pay him, the less he talks. Hmm, hmm, and you come out of there and you say, wow, that's a great conversation. <laughs> Because the more intelligent the doctor is, the more he realizes as a scientist that there's so much more we don't know. But anyhow, you don't go and tell him what to do. You're paying him. He's the pro. That comes in helpful, by the way, in every profession. If somebody's crabbing at you for what you're doing and the teacher gets his share of that, you know, parents get irate. Once in a while, it is helpful to remind the parent, whoever it is, to say, listen, I'm a professional. I am a pro. I don't know everything, but I'm a pro, and I'd like you to talk to me like you would your lawyer or your doctor. You're here to get professional help for this student. And it's amazing. It kind of clears the sinuses and everything. <laughs> well, you don't tell God how to do his job. You bring it to his attention and say, Lord of heaven and earth, now here is the situation. I'm not telling you what to do but do something. <laughs> that he has promised, that when you come to him for help, he'll do something. The second thing it seems to me we should not do, and that is if there is sickness, and we're talking primarily about healing now, and that is to suspect the person who is sick, even if it's ourselves, of lack of faith. And say, now if that person had more faith then he'd be healed. That's a very terrible thing. In fact, that's what people often say is wrong with miracles of healing. They say, well, if that's true that you can heal all these people, then it's cruel if you pray and somebody isn't healed because that means that person didn't have enough faith. 
We have cases in the Bible where if anybody should have been healed of everything he had, it was St. Paul. And he says three times. I often wondered. I've asked God more than three times and better than Paul, I guess. If I asked him six times. But he tried to say, I asked him repeatedly, and God didn't heal. He said, Paul, that's the way it is. So we do not blame people, even ourselves, for not having sufficient faith. There are some things we should do on the positive side, I think, in order to set the stage for miracles. Remember, even Jesus couldn't do miracles in some cases where the conditions weren't right and he had to leave. We start with ourselves. We search our lives for faith. Wouldn't it be terrible if another person did not receive a healing because I didn't have enough faith? Not that person. Don't preach to him and say, now I have more. Look at yourself and see if I'm hindering that person. In 1 John 3.22 it says, We receive from him whatever we ask because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. See, the second part we usually gloss over. We say we receive whatever we ask. But there's a comma. Because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we should believe in the name of his son Jesus Christ and love, love one another just as he commanded us. So we are putting the Lord first. God is above all. Not even the healing is the important thing. God is important. After all, the healing is temporary. I mean, if you heal a person for a thousand years, you want him to live a thousand years? <laughs> Eventually, it's going to go. We're all going to die. Nobody dies of natural causes, you know. It's in the paper sometimes when we don't know why he died. Died of natural causes. There is no natural cause of death. God doesn't want death. He hates the caskets and the tombstones and all that. He wants everybody to live. He doesn't take them to himself in heaven. You hear a funeral frequently. Oh, isn't it too bad? The Lord took him. No, sin took the person. Not necessarily that person's sin. Sin. There was no death before sin came in. I remember a funeral of one of our students. Beautiful girl. As a senior, she graduated a month later. She was killed in a car accident, shopping for college. And there's a huge funeral. A lot of students there. And I was sitting next to Pastor Stammel. And someone said, isn't it too bad that the Lord took her at such a tender age? And he jumped out of, his, out of the pew and got excited and animated and said, the Lord did not take her. Sin, sin produces death. We should never say that the Lord would be so cruel as to take somebody. And if it's a horrible crime, the Lord would have permitted even this crime in order to have another soprano in heaven or something, as you sometimes hear? No. Sin. We search our own hearts for healing conditions. But then always remember God is first. And even the healing is not going to be a thing that will per be perpetuated. Eventually we're going to die. And then after God, we come 
and then the neighbor. We must forgive ourselves too. That's why I say we're next after God. Unless you can forgive yourselves and love yourself, you can't love your neighbor as yourself. If you don't love yourself very much, you're not going to love your neighbor because the two should be the same kind of love. Then we leave it in God's hands and keep reminding ourselves and God of the problem. So, I was going to, as much as time permits now, talk a little about personal experiences of healing. Every so often I hear a story of a miracle or a healing that is just so amazing and so thought-provoking that I want to share it with people. I have two of those and then I'm going to ask for people who want to share a story of their own. One of them is the story of a student who went to a university where a professor of chemistry was known to be a real caustic agnostic. He would always belittle the students if they had faith and people would come out of there feeling very bad if they were Christians at all. And this young fellow came to this college and said, I hear that Dr. Lee in chemistry always gives this lecture where he belittles the Christian faith. Yes, that's true. He said, well, I have Dr. Lee in chemistry this semester, and I want you people to pray for me that I will have strength to do whatever the Lord wants me to do when he does talk that way. Okay, he went in there, and just before Thanksgiving vacation, Dr. Lee gave his usual standard lecture on miracles. And he said, look, I have a flask here, and a cement floor down here, and when I drop this flask, what do you think's going to happen? It's going to break, right? Well, okay, he said, if you believe in miracles, or if your parents believe in miracles, or your pastor or whoever, tell them to pray that when I drop this bottle, it's not going to break. Does anybody want to pray? Nobody prayed. He dropped the bottle, bang, people went home. Well, I guess science is bigger than religion, right? Well, this time the young student is in there, and he says the same thing, and when he says, is there anyone who wants to pray? The young fellow raises his hand and says, yes, Dr. Lee, I'd like to pray. And Lee was astounded. This never happened before. He said, isn't this interesting? Here we have a student who actually believes that this law of nature will be set aside. Let's all bow our heads and fold our hands while he prays. And here was his prayer, this young fellow. Dear Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, I thank you that you have heard me for your honor and Christ's name, don't let this flask break. Amen. Now you talk about sticking your neck out. I mean, there goes your whole grade. Lee dropped the bottle, and his one foot was sticking out too far, and it hit the foot and rolled over. It did not break. Now there's the nail again, right on the roof. Lee does not give that lecture anymore. <laughs> that's the miracle that's the miracle the other one is one I just heard at a breakfast uh, every third Wednesday of every month in the Holiday Inn in Plainview it's called the Good News Breakfast a CPA on Long Island started this about six years ago and now we have over a hundred men there every third Wednesday in fact last time it was so crowded we had to put up more Tables. All it is is a breakfast, you don't even pay for it, you 
put a little money in the bucket as you go out. There's a prayer, you eat breakfast, and then somebody that this CPA invites, a businessman from somewhere, gives a testimony to his Christian faith. Wow, it's at 7 in the morning, from 7 to 8 and everybody goes to work. I need those every third Wednesday. This last Wednesday we were there and there was a sergeant from the state police there and he told stories and we had another hour that would really make you sit up. But another speaker a few months ago was the head of pediatrics at Nassau Medical Center in East Meadow, a devout Christian. He's there every time this breakfast meets. And he told the story of a healing miracle, not just one, but of many throughout his half-hour talk. One of which was that when he came to a ward where there were children all dying of the same disease, a mother was sitting in the corridor and he asked her, what are you doing there? And she said, I'm praying for my little girl. Well, he didn't have the heart to tell her that her brain waves were flat, there was no sign of, of any meaningful life left, but he said to her, well, if you're praying, I'll pray with you. He said he prayed with this woman, went into the room, and the child literally, he said, came to life and is now a healthy youngster with no brain impairment at all. Now, nobody in that audience of 100 businessmen raised their hand and said that's scientifically impossible. He's the head of the pediatrics office. Another time he said we had 12 patients and this is written up, by the way, called The Efficacy of Prayer, a triple-blind study by, his name is Dr. Collip, Chairman, Department of Pediatrics, Meadowbrook Hospital, in which he said that they took 12 children who all had the same disease and the chance of recovery was very poor. I forget what kind of thing it was. And he decided to see if prayer could make a difference and he took six of their names and sent them to a church in Washington, D.C., where he knew the people, and told them to pray for those six as often as possible. And the other six, he did not do that. Here is a data report on the fact that the survival rate of the six that were prayed for was like 80%. And of the other that were not prayed for, Hardly anyone survived. Now, there are all kinds of moral questions. They say, what right did he have not to pray for the others? <laughs> Even an atheist. I've read studies like this where an atheist objected and said, you have no right not to pray for the other people. Well, why would an atheist object to not praying for the other people, right? So again, the miracle may be not so much the survival of these children and the others, as the thing that happens in the hearts of people. And that brings me to the last point before I want to turn it over uh, to reactions, and that is, what is the ultimate miracle? I asked all the scientists in this study, what do you think is the greatest miracle there is? And if it, usually, not always, but usually they would say, raising somebody from the dead. Well, when you really think about it, a miracle is something that doesn't happen very often. Well, we're all going to rise from the dead. So that's not really a miracle at all. <laughs> I think the ultimate miracle is coming to faith. And that's why Jesus performed the miracles he did. 
to produce or at least in the end result to have more trust and faith in God and in him as our savior. That's a very good signal, by the way, when 45 minutes are up. <laughs> and so now I would like to have people who would like to share with us to tell us about experiences in the miraculous and probably in healing of body or mind. The line between those two areas, by the way, has begun to disappear in medicine. Body and mind. I don't know. I did an article on this in the News and Witness a few months ago, and in writing the article, I called some doctors to research, and we really don't have much distinction anymore between what is a mental healing and what is physical, because it's all us, totally. If somebody had, I'm sure, that you research your own life, you have it. Okay, please. You, well, okay, you could do it from where you are, but if you'd like to come up 